Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals, where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Checking in with you every week to deliver actionable intelligence and bring important resources and information to the men and women who serve. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. My guest today is Dr. Mike Simpson. Mike is the host of the Mind of the Warrior Podcast and is a board-certified emergency medical physician. Our talk is going to be all about tactical medicine. We're going to talk about TCCC, care under fire, tactical field care. We're going to talk about self-care, current training and equipment, things that guys are doing in the field right now, talking about IFACs, talking about kit. There's going to be so much stuff in this podcast. I'm so excited to get it to you. So let's jump right into it and get Doc on the line. Hey, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm glad we could finally hammer some time down and get a chance to speak. There's a lot of things that I wanted to, to ask you because of your area of expertise. So before we jump into all of that, why don't you let the listeners know kind of who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Pleasure to be here, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Mike Simpson. I'm a doctor of emergency medicine practicing down here in the great state of Texas. Uh, I retired from the United States Army in 2016. I'm Again, I'm currently practicing doing what we call locums work, so I don't work at any one particular hospital. I kind of jump around, and I'm also medical director for a company called Persis Medical that makes the Israeli bandage, uh, the next generation interosseous needle, and a lot of really cool uh, cutting-edge pre-hospital stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. I was super excited when we started talking offline a bit about uh, exactly what you're doing right now. But to tie into the reason why I got you on the podcast in the first place was kind of more so your background and what you've done throughout your whole life. And I'm, I'm not going to kind of wreck it. I'm going to let you tell your story a little bit. <laughs> so why don't you tell us about, uh, about your time when you started from when you started with the military until now? Sure. Uh, so I, uh, two weeks out of high school, I raised my right hand and I shipped off to the United States Army. Uh, we went to infantry basic training uh, at Fort Benning, Georgia, and my first unit of, of assignment was the 1st Ranger Battalion in Savannah, Georgia. I spent four years there as an infantryman, specifically as a recoilless rifle squad member, then gunner, then uh, ultimately section leader. Thought that I actually was going to get out and pursue a career in law enforcement. And uh, so I, I finished after my first enlistment, and I was doing some college courses, kind of waiting around to see uh, if the right job was going to open up. Again, kind of dabbling in college, uh, my, I had thoughts of maybe getting a degree and either doing DEA or Secret Service or something like that. And the first Gulf War kicked off and the National Guard unit I was in got mobilized and realized that I really missed being on active duty. So I stayed around uh, after going to Special Forces Selection. I was in an SF Guard unit, went to the 18 Charlie course, which is a Special Forces Demolition Sergeant, did that job for a few years on active duty in the 7th Special Forces Group. Got bored with that, saw another shiny object, decided to pursue that and be an 18 Delta Special Forces medic and did that. Absolutely loved it. Um, that was my job for most of my time on an operational detachment. 
ultimately did a couple deployments as a team sergeant and, and also as an intelligence sergeant before going to medical school, which was the next shiny object that popped up. <laughs> and uh, went to medical school, went to emergency medicine residency. While in emergency medicine residency, I got a phone call and I was uh, selected uh, for the Joint Special, Joint Special Operations Command for a, for a special mission unit specifically that provides uh, medical care. So did that for, for six years while practicing as an emergency medicine physician and then uh, retired out of Fort Hood, Texas and retired down here to, to Texas, which is my home and uh, where my kids are. Whew, that's uh, that's quite the story, man. The, the, <laughs> I was telling you before, the fact that you went from started, you know, as an infantryman all the way up to now being a, a medical doctor and in the position that you are um, kind of overseeing a lot of different things, especially medical advancements in the field. That's an amazing story. Uh, and I'm really glad that you were able to join us today. One of the funny things was when I was looking at everything from your career and your accomplishments and the amount of knowledge that you have, when I, uh, I became a, then uh, this, <laughs> this is going to sound really funny after listening to your story, but I became a first aid instructor a couple of years ago here. And it kind of just parried into some of the, the defensive tactics training stuff. And I never really, I ran one or two courses and I never really did it. And when people are asking me why I never did it, I always said, because I'm not the expert, you know, like, I, yes, <laughs> I, yes, I can teach it. Yes, I know it. But mm-hmm. out of the textbook, I mean, and, you know, and the handful of times that I've actually had to use an AED and do chest compression and those types of things, mm-hmm. I don't do that. So every time that I, we, there was ever a reason to run a course, I don't mm-hmm. track down the guys that teach first aid, but they're active paramedics, guys that have been right. for the last 15, 20 years because they do it day in, day out. They, they know it back to front and they know all the intricacies that they're never going to get from somebody like myself, which is one sure. I was so excited to have you on because you've, you, you can't, you don't only talk the talk, man. You've walked the walk. You've been on deployments. You're a active ER doctor. So I know that everybody listening here is going to be kind of on the edge of their seat when you, when you say something, because they know it's coming from a credible source. Well, you know what you hit on a, on a really, really important point. And I'm, I'm glad you brought this up kind of early on so we can talk about it. it I'm, I'm a firm believer, whether we're talking about something medical or something tactical, I believe, I I call it the two levels up principle, is anytime you're going to teach something, uh, generally should kind of be two levels up from whatever it is that you're teaching in order to have total mastery in it. And I always advise people that are going to take a course, you should be taking a course from somebody who is two levels up from you. Uh, Because somebody who is at your level is going to have all the same questions that you have. Somebody who is one level up might have, you know, 50% of those questions answered. But somebody who's two levels up is going to be able to answer those really, really in-depth questions for you. And that's the way I, I feel. You know, I, I could, uh, I've been through uh, Advanced Trauma Life Support, which is run by the American College of Surgeons. And I've been, uh, I have got the highest marks every time I've ever done it, which they call instructor level. So I could take the instructor course, and even though I'm not a, a trauma surgeon, I could teach the course and I don't do that simply because I think when it comes to hospital-based trauma, I think that's their lane. You know, if you're talking pre-hospital trauma, I feel very, very comfortable teaching that. You know, I've been a special forces medic. I've been a paramedic. 
Um, I've deployed as an emergency medicine physician. I've worked out of an aid bag most of my life. So that's something I feel qualified to teach. But, but like you, when people come to me and they say, Hey, you know, what about this? Like if somebody came to me and they said, uh, unless it was a very basic class and say EKG reading, uh, I probably wouldn't teach it. I would probably defer to somebody else. I would, I would probably say, Hey, let me get Amomatu on the phone. You know, he's, he's an expert on this. We'll get him over here to teach it or something like that. Do you think that that's a common trait with instructors that you've found that being able to take a step back and saying, you know what, I maybe don't know as much as I think I do. So I'm going to bring somebody in who does. I, I think it's a common trait of the really good ones, in my opinion. And I, not to say that I am a really good instructor. I'm not trying to lump myself in with them. But that was what I, that was what I learned from the from the good instructors that I saw, you know, for when I was going through the Q course. When I was going through as a, uh, you, know, you know, I'll start at, you know, the, with the, the very beginning, when I was going through uh, the first MOS phase, you know, to be a demolition sergeant, to be an 18 Charlie, and I was knowing that I would graduate and I would go to an ODA as the junior engineer on that team. So it wouldn't have made sense for other junior engineers to be, you know, teaching that course, you know, brand new staff sergeants to be teaching that course. And there weren't. Most of the, most of the cadre that were teaching it not only had been uh, junior Charlies and then senior Charlies, most of them had gone on to be uh, the 18 Fox on the team, the intelligence sergeant, and or some of which had even served uh, tours as team sergeants. So these were guys who were well-versed and had the broader picture. They not only knew the individual uh, and, you know, minutia tasks of exactly how you prep that cutting charge or prep that breaching charge, but they knew the larger scale, you know, this is how you plan for a large scale demolition takedown of a bridge. And this is how that uh, fits into the larger scope of the commander's intents. You know, they, they'd seen it at a, at a higher level. And, you know, you never want to be, when you're up there at the podium, you never want to question down and get back to you. You know, what, you know, one or two times, hey, let me look it up during the break. You know, that's fine. But if you're constantly having to say, I don't know, I'm gonna have to reference something. And to me, and I even saw this in medical school, it, I, I saw uh, it, it's a shame that you, you think of a PhD doing this, but I saw a PhD who, no matter what question you ask this PhD, they'd say, well, it's in the book, it's in, the, it's in your textbook. Uh, and I, to me, that's just not the right answer. Yeah, that's that's frustrating for sure. I, I specifically remember a time uh, back when I was taking universities. It's like a 200 level course, nothing major, but the we had a grad student teaching the course and they were rifling off stuff that was not only incorrect and outdated, but it just way back. And I, I put my hand up. I was like, uh, excuse me, which apparently you don't do because you get called into the dean's office pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like I'm paying for this that there's something wrong right yeah uh, I 100% agree with you um, you brought up a few things there and one of the things that I really really wanted to get into was I wanted to get into your thoughts about tactical EMS because mm -hmm. I know that's something that you specialize in and it's applicable to everybody listening to this podcast right now so I want to kind of get your your thoughts on on the state of tactical EMS right now and then i'll probably have a few uh few more direct questions for you when it comes to things like uh ccs field first aid and stuff like that so what sure. are your thoughts right now on the state of tactical ems uh that's a that's a tricky question and i'm going to tell you why it's a tricky question in my opinion is uh tactical ems 
means totally different things to different people. Uh, and and I, I say that that applies regionally. You know, if, if I say that, if I say tactical EMS in a certain room full of people in Baltimore, Maryland, that means one thing. If I say it in San Diego, California, that means another thing. If I say that to paramedics, it means one thing. If I say it to physicians, it means another thing. If I say it to SWAT commanders, it means another thing. If I say it to FEMA or uh, you know the head of mu- municipalities in different places, it means different things. And that's part of the problem. And and I've been asked this actually very recently, you know, is well, who who governs this? Mm-hmm. And the answer is everybody and nobody. So that's why it means different things. I mean, generally, we all think of it as meaning exactly what it does mean, which is you have units that are engaged in tactical operations, and, and tactical operations should require no explanation. I'm sure it doesn't to your listeners. And there is someone providing medical support to that. Um, but there are so many different ways to skin that cat. And it, it's... Uh, the way it was, it was described to me, and I, I, some people listening might disagree with this, but it, it kind of depends on whether your, your plan was born out of uh, striving to be organic to police or whether it was born uh, out of or, uh, trying to be organic to fire. Uh, that's kind of the simplest way to say that you, the, the, where the two different paths kind of are. And that's not completely black and white. But uh, it's tricky. And the first time that I was ever introduced to it was uh, actually I, I was brand new as a special forces medic. I'd just gotten back from you know, going over and cross training and went back to my old battalion and went on a trip to uh, train San Diego SWAT, which at the time didn't call themselves San Diego SWAT. They called themselves uh, San Diego SRT. Um, I think they might've changed back at some point. I'm not hundred percent sure, but um, we were training them and specifically training them in, in case they were going to go up against uh, anybody that might deploy some type of IEDs and some type of barricaded scenario. And they had uh, tactical EMS with them. And this was such an unusual thing that they actually have. These weren't guys who wore, they didn't wear San Diego PD uniforms. They didn't wear San Diego fire uniforms. They were their EMS at the time, and I'm dating myself because this was this was back in the '90s. Their EMS at the time was actually a contract company. So, this contract civilian company did not have liability for their paramedics being armed, so they they couldn't carry weapons of any kind, and it, it also affected a lot of what. They were basically the company's insurance affected how they were going to be implemented as a resource. Um, And that was in the 90s. Now, we've come a long way since then, um, but there's still a lot of different ways to skin the cat. And and it's looked at at a lot of different ways. Some some people look at tactical EMS as being integral. They wear the, the same badge as the police officers. They're armed at all times. They are sworn officers. Uh, Others take it away completely, keep it completely under fire or completely under EMS. Um, Some places there's kind of a hybrid of the two. So it's different in a lot of different places. And I think 
the key without getting too long winded here, which I've probably already done the, the, the key to that. I think the key challenge in the, in the years ahead is putting everybody on the same sheet of music, regardless of how they're skinning that cat, putting them on the same sheet of music as to what are the realistic threats that are going to be faced and how do those threats need to be addressed? And I think there's a way to do that irrespective of what format people are using, whether they're arming their paramedics or not. And that's a, a hot button issue we can talk all day on. I have my own opinions on it. Um, but I think there, there's, there, there are workarounds uh, and there are work throughs. I think work throughs are always better. Um, but I don't think any two departments, I don't think it, you'd be challenged to get two departments in the same state to adopt the same format. <laughs> so trying to get at something nationwide, I think is going to be even more challenging. Yeah. On that, on that note of standardization, my understanding is that there are programs and there is kind of a doctrine out there that is somewhat widespread and mm -hmm. adopted and agreed to by the majority of people that those are programs like uh, TCCC who heads those organ like where what organizations are those right now in your opinion mm -hmm. kind of leading the charge and, and where is that going yeah well you, you mentioned TCCC and TCCC obviously is i mean that's that's pretty much the gold standard uh and it does lead the charge um surprisingly i've discovered you know, recently i was at the thor conference in in norway and uh, which is a an international conference uh uh, trying to remember, uh, trauma, hemorrhage, oxygenation, resuscitation, I think is what the, they just wanted it to spell Thor because it's in Norway for obvious reasons. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, surprisingly, TCCC, the TCCC ball has been kind of picked up and carried by civ uh, civilian agencies internationally, I think at a, at a, a higher rate of penetration than it has here nationally. Um, now here nationally, we also have the Committee on Tactical Emergency Casualty Care, CTECC, uh, which is kind of the civilian counterpart. And uh, I'm, uh, I, I work in, a, in, in an advisory. I don't, I don't say work. I don't, obviously, I don't get a paycheck. Um, <laughs> I'm considered uh, in an advisory capacity for them. I'm not a board member. I don't get to vote on any policy or anything like that. But uh, I've attended a couple of their meetings. And... Uh, I think they recognized that I, that I brought something to the table and, and that uh, I was a voice that could be heard, which I, I really appreciate because when, you, when you're in that room uh, with guys like Reed Smith and Josh Bobco, uh, it's it, it, Mike Schurz, you look around the room and you're like, wow, this is, these are the thought leaders when it comes to, to tactical uh, casualty care in the civilian setting. And they're the proponent. And, but it's it's not that simple. I mean, just being the proponency is not that simple because it's there is no um, federal law that says okay. In in Waco, Texas, you know the 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 whatever you're doing for tactical EMS in Waco, Texas, must fall into in into lockstep with what with the guidelines that TECC puts down. There there's no federal law governing that. Uh, there's nothing, at, you know, at state levels, at federal levels that, that would dictate that. So although these are guidelines, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, they're, they're suggestions, you know, they're, they're best practice guidelines, which I think, you know, somebody's out there listening to this and they say, well, where do I look to know what I should be doing? That is where you should look to know what you should be doing. Um, but again, there's not, uh, 
this is this is not something where uh, like the Joint Commission in hospitals where, where uh, people from TEC to come and inspect your training and inspect your your log books and your credentials and and make sure you're adhering to the standard because they don't have that kind of power nor do they have that kind of manpower. Yeah, I find it really interesting that because in my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong. But in my understanding that, say for emergency medicine, there is kind of a guideline and a checklist mm-hmm. that comes in with trauma or say somebody comes in with a gunshot wound. From what I remember uh, working in a hospital was that there was kind of a, a almost like a checklist for yeah. the team to follow to make sure that nothing was, was ever missed. Um, mm-hmm. those, are, those are people that have been doing it. They're emergency medical experts. They been doing it for years and they do it every day yet they still mm-hmm. follow a checklist why isn't something like that taken and, and put into something for ems and 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 things like that like am i missing something mm-hmm. uh i i can i think i can give you kind of a kind of the short answer to that the short answer would be so in order to in order for me to have a hospital that has a functioning emergency room right and not not every hospital necessarily has an emergency room and then you have different levels uh, of, of emergency rooms. Like there's, there's trauma designations, right? So uh, a level one trauma center means we, we take everything. So that's, I trained at a level one trauma center. So that's every gunshot, every uh, vehicle rollover, every burn, dismemberment, whatever you can possibly imagine. It's going to the level one trauma center. And then the designations kind of go down from there. To have and maintain any of those trauma designations, you have to be uh, approved by the American College of Surgeons. And the, the checklist that you described, the, the, the format by which they kind of uh, provide quality assurance, is called Advanced Trauma Life Support, ATLS. And ATLS was designed way back. Uh, so as an emergency medicine physician, I don't have to requalify an ATLS. I did it twice as an, as an 18 Delta Special Forces medic. I did it once as a med student right before graduation. As a board-certified emergency medicine physician, the American College of Surgeons has recognized the level of training that I have, and they say, I don't, I don't ever have to do it again, as long as I maintain my board certification. What ATLS was designed for is that little tiny emergency room that you drive by out in the country that is, is manned on a, on a 12 or 24-hour shift by that local country doctor that, that might be an old school general practitioner, might be an internal medicine doctor, might be a family medicine doctor. Um, they, if, if that emergency room that you're looking at is, is authorized to receive ambulances with trauma at any level, they have to be uh, a graduate of ATLS and they have to have a current ATLS certificate. And they're going to follow that checklist that you described to the letter because that's how they've been taught to do trauma. Do, don't veer from that you're going to maintain it that way. Now, when you're talking about tactical EMS, when you're talking about, uh, you know, SWAT teams and, and Thames teams, uh, there's, there's nobody saying to them, you will do a primary survey in the field using the March algorithm or using the XABC algorithm or using the, the react algorithm where, uh, mnemonic, which is, is what I used to teach in my, my, my course. Um, there's nobody dictating that. You know, it's by and large, people are using mnemonics or, or, or algorithmic approaches that are pretty close to one another, whether that's the XABC or the March, which is what TCCC uses. 
but there's nobody to stand over them and say, if you're going to treat trauma in the field, you will treat it this way, period. And I, and somebody might be, there might be somebody listening who's disagree with me. If, if NAEMT is saying something different, uh, and they might be, but, uh, I've worked with multiple organizations and, and I've heard multiple different reasons why, why they choose to do it a slightly different way. And, you know, a lot of people have adopted the March mnemonic as the way to do it, which is what T-Tri-C teaches. Um, but not everybody, you know, some, some people are old school and they're like, well, it's X, A, B, C is almost the same. So I just do it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you say that. Cause I mean, I was familiar, I'm familiar with March. Um, just, mm-hmm the TCCC. And when I originally thought of, you know, tactical EMS, that's, that's where my head goes because it goes, okay, first is care under fire. So mm-hmm. if I'm in contact, it's return fire. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so mm-hmm. anybody who's come from the military background, that's kind of, that's step one. And then you get into, okay, now I'm into the tactical field care portion, which is March. And then you get into your, uh, your evacuation phase. Right. But, Something that kind of queued up when you were when you were talking about um, your time dealing with the civilian agencies, there is a I believe there's probably an inherent difference between, like you said, the military perspective uh, and maybe even policing perspective of what TCCC is and what a civilian or an EMS or fire would think of it as. Um, and it could be something as simple as in theater, you're looking at more things like um, shrapnel and blast injuries and. Mm-hmm extremities because of body armor yes when you're talking about it in a civilian aspect or in the u.s or in canada or in any other modern country you're looking more so at torso injuries so either gunshot correct things like that so am i am i kind of on the right page there what do you No, you're 100 on the right page the the wounding pattern is different this multiple studies have been done on that uh, to show that the wounding pattern, pattern is different. And at the most recent uh, TECC meeting, actually, we, we discussed that again with, the, with the, the latest data that's out there. And you're, you're 100% correct for obvious reasons. Um, you know, body armor probably being uh, the biggest factor. Also, another thing that comes into play is, is those uh, chest and tor- torso injuries tend to be a lot more survivable in the civilian world because they tend to be a little bit more low velocity, right? So uh, if, you know, let, let's say I'm out with a bunch of Rangers one night and we hit a target. And of course, we, you know, when the smoke clears, we're treating, medically, we're treating everybody, right? Well, any bad guys who didn't have body armor on, who got shot center chest by a Ranger with 5.56, five, they're not treatable because <laughs> they died as soon as they got hit. Um, in, in, in these civilian instances, we're not seeing that, you know, that's, it's, it's a nine millimeter. It's not it's typically not dead center in the, in the 10 ring. So they tend to be a lot more survivable for that reason. So there's multiple things that contribute to that, in my opinion. Um, and I think most, most people that have, have looked at the data would agree with me. Here's my thought on that though, is, is I still think that March is best. I still think that addressing massive hemorrhage first is the best answer. And the reason I say that is somebody uh, with an arterial injury to an extremity, uh, you know, if they have a a brachial artery injury, a femoral artery injury, they could die in three to four minutes, you know, maybe even a little bit, maybe even under three minutes, 
if they're amped up, their heart rate is high. Um, it could be less tech, you know, technically it could be less than three minutes. It only took, takes me 30 seconds to put that tourniquet on. And that's also something that is a hundred percent treatable in the field. Now let's take the, the guy who was shot in the chest. Attention pneumothorax is usually not going to kill somebody in that, in that same three to four minute time period. If they typically, if they're dying in that three to four minute time period, it's because they had uh, an injury to the heart or an injury to the, to the central vasculature that was not compatible with life anyway. And, and also whether I put a chest seal on that or not, that may not be a survival. I mean, that's literally putting on a chest seal and usually decompressing the chest are kind of the only things that, that most people are going to do in the field. I mean, you know, get a little bit higher than that. We're talking about doing chest tubes or, or finger thoracotomies, thoracostomies, whatever it might be. But, you know, typically if that is an injury that's going to die quickly, then it probably was not a survivable injury to begin with. And I don't have a complete chest set in the field with me, right? I can't crack the chest and cross clamp the aorta or whatever it might be. Um, so the reason I think to, to circle back around, the reason I think March is still, in my opinion, the way to go is because it's, it addresses things that can kill you in three to four minutes with something you can 100% do to stop that death in that time period. As opposed to if we, if we tried to rewrite it for civilians and say, well, you're getting more chest injuries, so we're going to have you treat the chest first. Well, then they might die from bleeding from that easily treatable extremity injury while I'm treating the, treating the chest injury. And obviously, for obvious reasons, that's not what we want to happen. Thank you for explaining that. I think that was a fantastic way to, to kind of summarize all of that. And But it brought up so many different, I was making notes as you were talking. Um, Am I giving too long answers? <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay, because I will ramble. <laughs> um, one of the things to kind of set you up here, um, one of the things that I want to talk about for sure is tourniquets, because um, I know yeah. you, have some, uh, you have some thoughts on that. But the other one was anybody listening to the podcast who are in the field that could potentially be involved with a responsive incidents where they're possibly under fire or maybe something where there is immediate danger. Now it doesn't have to necessarily be an enemy combatant. It could be mm -hmm. um, environmental. Mm -hmm. uh, where would you say, and obviously just your opinion on drawing the line at care in the field versus mm -hmm. back and moving to a more advanced care location? Um. I always say no matter what phase of care you're in, whether that's care under fire, tactical field care, uh, prolonged field care, care in transit, whatever it might be, you should only address injuries that are going to kill them before that next phase. So obviously, if, if I had to drag somebody across you know, X number of feet of open ground, uh, there is the potential, and, and there they have a spurting femoral bleed obviously there's the potential that that could kill them before I get them to cover. And I don't want that to happen. So that has to be addressed, whether it's, whether it's with direct pressure, you know, grabbing a hold of that thing and, and using that as, a, as one of your lifting points or, or if it's with a tourniquet, you know, there's this, depending on who you talk to, you know, you know one, one school of thought is a tourniquet is the only thing that ever happens in care under fire. And I, and I would I would say that that's true that that's the highest level of care and care under fire, okay. Um, unless you're down behind a wall or you know behind a uh, 
behind a vehicle, the firefight might still be going on, but then you know, you're behind cover. So, so you can, you can maybe do a little bit more. Maybe you can apply a chest seal, decompress a chest, something of that nature. But by and large, I mean, there's only, there's only two things that you should be doing. The first thing you should always be doing under fire is returning fire. Because if somebody's still shooting at you, it's not time to provide medical care at all. Um, if it's environmental or a potential threat, i.e. you think, you know, that's, hey, uh, this guy happened to get wounded right next to the backpack that the shooter was carrying, and there's pipes sticking out of it, uh, pipes and wires. That's obviously not someplace I want to treat somebody. So I need to identify where I want to go with that person. And then anything I have to do to keep them alive for that 30 to 50 feet, I'm going to do, but no more. And uh, that's, to me, that's in, in junior medics and people that have not been under fire while they provided care. That's the biggest hole that I see in the game is people want to stay and play too much. Uh, and I think it's less is more because it's treating what you can to get them to that next level and then providing more care, I think is, is the right answer 90% of the time. Yeah. And I think, and self-care also kind of yeah. comes with that as well, right? Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's great you brought that up too, because the potential for self-care in the civilian setting uh, you know, especially we're talking about law enforcement, civilians obviously as well, but especially law enforcement officers, because they're a little bit more likely to be carrying an IFAC. The potential for self-care is higher because again, we're talking about mostly low velocity stuff, right? So, you know, unlike, uh, unlike getting shot by, a, you know, an AK round that might've just spun me around on my axis and I'm just, or getting hit by an IED, uh, which, uh, guys that I've talked to and I've interviewed guys on my podcast who are hit by IEDs and, you know, them talking about their state of mind, like literally not knowing, am I alive? Am I dead? Who's, you know, who's, what's that voice I hear? Oh, that's my voice. I mean, literally having no idea. So uh, one of the guys I, I, I interviewed a guy, uh, uh, just a great guy by the name of uh, Bobby Dove. Um, he, as he was losing consciousness was telling the weapons guy on his team, he, he just kept repeating tourniquet, tourniquet, tourniquet as he passed. Um, but if you think of this from a law enforcement or civilian point of view, you know, it's probably going to be a, a knife or a low velocity. So you're a lot more likely to have the ability to do that self-care. And I don't know if you've seen that video of uh, there's a, a high-risk stop was conducted on the highway and they get out and one of the officers gets shot, takes one in the arm. And he immediately, the, the other officers kind of close in and, and get in front of him to provide care, to provide fire rather. And he's whipping out his own tourniquet and, and getting it on. Uh, and one of the other officers runs over just really briefly to, to kind of help him out with the tourniquet. But uh, that potential is there and it's real and it's something that needs to be practiced 100%. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts? So two two things, because I want to I wanna finish up the thought of with the TCCC and then I want to get into the, the IFAC stuff. Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about unneeded or not unneeded, but unnecessary equipment that people are bringing out into the field? Uh, oh, it drives me absolutely crazy, man. And to preface that for people, I, <laughs> um, I'm not talking about um, the extra kit on your weapon system. I'm talking more about things like uh, monitors, O2 tanks and things like that. So I'll let you. Yeah. Know. So have you, 
Have you heard my my O2 tank spiel? Have you heard that? I, I, I have. I kind of binged on your content. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I, I know I've said that before. I didn't know if you'd heard it or not. So yeah. To, yeah. So to me, if you are carrying O2 tanks into a firefight, you are voluntarily running towards the enemy with explosives. I mean, that's, that's really the best way to put it. And, and here's the fact of the matter. So, and this came up at the Thor conference, something that I've been saying for years. So definitive airway management and a lot of these trauma cases is a, an exceedingly low priority, an exceedingly low priority. Uh, and people are, gonna, are gnashing their teeth while I say that. But the fact of the matter is, if, when you're talking about a multi-system trauma patient who's hypovolemic, if you perform an endotracheal intubation on that patient, you're actually taking away their, all their preload. And they've, they, uh, we had some excellent data at the Thor conference this year that showed basically entire cohorts of patients that, that compensated for their shock very, very, very well up to the point that they got intubated and then they immediately crashed because all their preload was taken away. There's really no, there's in, in my opinion, and I've racked my brain back and forth on this, I don't think there's ever in any indication uh, until you're in a vehicle, until you're in an ambulance or on a helicopter to give oxygen to a ballistic trauma patient. That's, that's my opinion is I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze. Number one, I don't think, you know, put, putting an oxygen mask on somebody in the ambulance or in the aircraft, that's great. Okay. Putting them on them at the scene. I mean, yeah, if they're already, you know, they're already having some, some issues with oxygen carrying capacity. So, okay. So the last six red blood cells they got left, you're going to maximally saturate them. Hey, good for you. Uh, but to what end, you know, how, there's, we have a saying in medicine, or, or, or there's, a, there's a thing in medicine uh, called uh, the number needed to treat, right? So how many people with a cough and a, and a fever do I have to give a pack to before I really treated a pneumonia? Um, that number is rel- relatively low, okay? So it's, it's acceptable. That's why you see Z-Packs. They still get given out too much, but that, that's why Z-Packs get, get given out the way they do, because the number needed to treat is, is a pretty low number. The number needed to treat to carry oxygen into a firefight is astronomical. Like the one or two patients you would actually help uh, because, you know, just saturating again, those last six red blood cells was what kept their brain alive. Um, astronomically low. Typically, and if, and if you look at all those, you always see these big pie charts of, you know, what kills people in these ballistic trauma incidents, whether we're talking about the global war on terror or civilian, and you see this little narrow sliver that's airway, right? If you dissect that narrow sliver a little bit farther, um, that's not people who are failing to control their airway. That's usually, uh, they had uh, maybe a grazing wound to the neck maybe took out uh, some of their great vessels. They've got an expanding hematoma and they really needed to get criked or they've got a a facial or a jaw injury. So they needed to get criked. Um, But even in those instances, what they need is they need that crike or, you know, they need that definitive airway, but oftentimes their respiratory drive is still there. So, you know, you paralyzing them and sedating them, and taking over their airway and hooking them up to oxygen, you're not really doing them any favors because you took away their preload, which is probably going to kill them. You carried an explosive device into a firefight to do it, which was a dumb thing to begin with. 
Uh, and the fact of the matter is, if somebody stops breathing because of penetrating trauma, that's usually that that's in, indicative of you need to vent their chest first of all to make sure it's not that they can't breathe because of bilateral bilateral pneumothoraces. Uh, it's usually not an airway issue, and it's usually not a, oh, I'm going to breathe for him and I'm going to get this guy through it. This isn't somebody in cardiac arrest. This is somebody who had penetrating trauma. So oftentimes those are actually dead people. So just to clarify for myself, just to make sure that I'm not missing something here, when you, when you talk preload, mm -hmm. my understanding just from your explanation is that the human body is amazing at keeping itself alive. Yes. And it reacts in ways that we don't even think about in order to keep us alive. Um, mm -hmm. so what you're saying with the preload is that when you either you do some type of trach tube or anything and then administer assisted breathing, you're mm -hmm. giving the body permission to be like, oh, okay, somebody else has got it. I'm going to step back. Uh, not exactly. So, yeah. So what happens is we, the way we breathe is uh, we produce we produce negative pressure inside of our chest, right? We, we, we pull the diaphragm down that creates negative pressure, right? And nature abhors a vacuum. So what happens is the, the, the air at whatever air pressure you're currently at uh, rushes into your lungs to expand them because the lungs don't expand on their own. They're just bags. Mm -hmm. So the diaphragm creates that negative pressure, creates a vacuum, sucks air into the chest. The moment I stick, stick a tube down your throat and I start breathing for you, this is now positive pressure ventilation. So every time, every time that ventilator pushes air in or every time that bag valve mask pushes air in, that's positive pressure going into your chest. That positive pressure, oftentimes in a patient that has already bled out a lot of their volume, that positive pressure is going to exceed the pressure in the superior and inferior vena cava that are bringing blood back to the heart. So if as I squeeze that bag valve mask, picture this in your mind, I squeeze that bag valve mask and as I do so, the pressure in your chest goes up, the vena cava collapses, so no blood gets back to the heart. And that's what I mean when I say I've eliminated your preload. And you can see this happen. There's, uh, if you look for it, I believe there's some pretty good videos of this actually happening where they did it under fluoroscopy and they showed as they put positive pressure ventilation into the chest, the vena cava completely collapses. Basically, your heart is still beating, but it's empty. It's, so, and if you don't have preload, then you don't have afterload. You don't have anything coming out the other side. That makes a lot of sense, actually, the way that you explain it. I, something I would have never thought of uh, that, you know, one, I mean, yeah, of course, we know that all our systems are kind of interconnected in one way or the other, but you wouldn't think necessarily that by adding air which most people think is what that person is going to need to stay alive you're actually stopping the blood flow which is the thing that is going to keep them alive that's really interesting yeah it's a little bit it's a little counterintuitive even to what i thought or even to what i was taught in the early days of medicine but now and again this this kind of reflects back to that whole uh that whole two levels up thing right is is something that you know it i was taught to innovate as an 18 Delta. And I was taught that multi-system trauma patients all get intubated in the field. And, and I, in, in training, you know, whether we were doing it on live tissue or mannequins or whatever it was, that patient got intubated. And knowing what I know now, if, 
also also knowing from experience after seeing all these trauma patients is how many of them are awake alert and yes in pain but still protecting their airway um yeah that's that's just a, it's a beehive you don't want to poke at yeah absolutely i think that's kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier though it's unless you have the time in the field and the experience or the instructor that is is teaching you has that experience mm-hmm. you're just going to get the stuff that's been passed along from you mm-hmm. know to instructor to instructor and sometimes and that's and that's kind of where the innovation kind of not necessarily stops but hits a plateau right until right something happens i mean we see that we saw the same thing with firearms training with the military right you can yeah back you know uh operant conditioning and, and all those types of things it, it's until something happens that's not usually not good that we go back mm-hmm. and realize, oh shit, what what did we do? What happened? And now we make the change. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. That's the same absolutely thing. right. That's in my understanding is that's how trauma care, uh, not just for military or, or emergency medicine, that's how it 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 always advances. This is a slow roll, is my understanding. It, it is. And it, it's when I went through training, we were still and and some places are still clinging to this. That you know, it used to be every trauma patient got two liters of crystalloid fluid. So they got two liters of either lactated ringers or normal saline. And at the time, this got very misconstrued over time because actually that was originally something that people came up with as a diagnostic tool. And uh, basically, if if you came in to me, you were my trauma patient and your your blood pressure was uh, below 100 and your heart rate was was above normal, you know, say your heart rate was in the one teens, one twenties. And I gave you two liters of fluid and that seemed to kind of take care of it and manage it. Um, I knew you were in a very, very early stage of shock. And if it, it took care of it transiently, I, I could estimate by how long transiently it addressed it, uh, what stage of shock you were in. And if it didn't touch it at all, I knew you were in a much later stage of shock. Um, so it was only really a diagnostic tool and I'm, and I'm, I'm fudging a little bit on, on how I'm describing it. And if anybody wants to call me to the carpet, I recognize that, but, um, it, over time, people started to think it was a treatment. So people were even teaching in battlefield medicine where, uh, you know, at the time we, you know, nowhere near blood. Uh, it was really, it was, it was a question you really didn't even need answered other than the fact that the guy's got holes in him and he's in some level of shock. And what we found out over time was those two liters of crystalloid fluid, uh, they thin out your clotting factors, they dilute the red blood cells that you have remaining carrying oxygen, and because they are basically at ambient room temperature, they cool the body even more, which feeds into that lethal triad of hypothermia, hypothermia, acidosis, and uh, decreased coagulation of the blood. So they were actually making people sicker. Um, so we've gone way 180 degrees from that. You know, when I first started as a medic, I was carrying liter bags of fluid. And by the time I did my last trip, uh, in the war on terror, I was carrying 250 CC bags of fluid and I was primarily only carrying them. So if I needed to do some type of field anesthesia, uh, you know, or field, field sedation, I was trying not to put people down all the way, not to use. And, and also as a, as a gateway, so I could start my blood, not as a resuscitative tool and not as a diagnostic tool. So we've come a, a long way. Uh, but like you say, some, some places and, and some organizations are 
go kicking and screaming into that next level. On, on all these topics that we've just talked about, you have uh, episodes out that go much more in depth on Mind of the Warrior. So what I'm going to do here on ours as well is I'm going to link those for everybody to listen to. So if you want a little bit more of an in-depth look at, at what we've just talked about, you can check those out on Mind of the Warrior podcast. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for checking out the first half of my interview with Dr. Mike Simpson. To catch the second half, which will be coming out in the next day or two, make sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player, and you'll be the first to get a chance to listen to it. If you haven't already, make sure to check us out at thebreakdown.ca. We are giving away a gear bag full of equipment for those of you who subscribe to the podcast. It's completely free, so make sure to jump on and do that today. Share it with your friends uh, and colleagues, and I look forward to continually bringing you guys this content. I look forward to launching the second half of this interview with Doc. You guys are really going to enjoy it. And coming up on the podcast, we have amazing guests, people like Tony Blauer, Jay Dobbins, and so many more. So I hope you guys are enjoying the content. Have a great rest of your shift, and make sure to stay safe.